you here this morning, Russ. Welcome. Good morning. You know, Jason is right about Chad, man. That guy is a machine. I mean, I think I was looking over just the website last night and how many sermons he preached in a row. Just astounding. I mean, like a hundred? Is it something like that? It's crazy. He should be almost like reached sainthood by now, right? <laughs> it's amazing. If we have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 5, please. Luke chapter 5. Continuing in the holiness series, and today we're talking about the, the holiness of the Son. So we're jumping into the Gospels today. Luke chapter 5. We're going to go through uh, verses 1 through 11. All right, let's read this together. 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said, Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at, his, at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had been taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we, we contemplate your son today, that we would be amazed. We would truly just be amazed, maybe in a way we've never had before, by his holiness, by his difference from us and Lord, I pray that that would have a transforming effect on all of us in this room and this church and this town and that your grace would be spilling out on us and this a weak soul up here to preach the word to anybody we know that does not know you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I told you before, I want to talk about the holiness of Jesus today. But before I can even get to the holiness of Jesus, we have to figure out who Jesus is, Right? I mean, who is this guy that, that we sing about, that we write songs about, that we talk about every Sunday? Who's this guy that, that supposedly lived this amazing life and died on the cross, one of the worst possible deaths we can possibly think of? Who is Jesus? Such an important question because how we answer that question has implications for how we live, doesn't it? Actually, you know who the first one to ask that question was? Jesus. He asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Simon Peter was brave enough to answer, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that began who they were, that began them knowing who Jesus actually was. And as they spilled forth all that truth in the Bible, the church has seen for many years that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's what it all comes down to. 
And you wouldn't believe how unpopular that is. Because over the centuries, people have tried to chip away at those. Take a little away from his deity, take a little away from his humanity. Actually, the first person to do this were the Gnostics. You guys heard about these guys? Second and third centuries, about um, right after Jesus had died, they came into the church and they tried to steer people astray. They said, okay, look, everything physical is bad. Everything. Food, anything that we could do physically, any physical thing is bad, sinful, evil. Stay away. Everything spiritual is good. So if God is spiritual, he has to be good, right? That's how it works. So you have a real problem with Jesus. Because, yeah, of course he's God. Otherwise, our sins are still there. But he can't be a man because he's physical. So they say, okay, we'll, we'll say he's God, but not man. So we're, we're just going to leave that out. The disciples had a problem with this, obviously. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, There is one God, one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Then there were another group that came along called the Arians. These guys flipped it around and said, You know what? We're okay with Jesus' humanity. But he was born. He was a man. So if he was born, he had to be created. God can't be created. So that means he wasn't fully God. So we'll say he's really a man, but he's not completely God. And the disciples fought this as well. In Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And over and over and over, these heresies just keep getting recycled. That's it. There's no new heresies in the church. It's just always attacking the same things. Even today, these are still out there. I think the heresy of our day is not denying Jesus' humanity. It's not. It's taken away from his deity. If you went up to the average person on the street and said, hey, do you think Jesus really existed? Was he really a man? Most of them would say, yeah, of course he's a man. Right? He, he did cool things. I've heard people say, he's the greatest mind of our time. Whatever that means. And stuff like that. I mean, half the country songs that we hear in Bakersfield are about Jesus, right? So he had to be a man. He had to really exist. Okay with that. But as soon as you turn that around and say, hey, should Jesus be worshipped? Does he have all authority? Is he God Almighty? Step back and say, no, wait a minute. There's, there's probably lots of ways to God we don't really know. There could be, you know, Buddha could be worshipped, and that's okay with me. And when you get down to it, what they're really saying is, no, Jesus can't be God. Because if he's God, I have to give authority to him and not me. I don't want to share the authority in my life. I am master of my own destiny. No one interferes with that. That's why we have a problem with Jesus' deity. And guys, this is everywhere. We try to shrink Jesus and bring him down to our level all the time. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this stuff, but I've seen Jesus bobblehead dolls. Have seen these things? There's a, the Jesus, Buddy Jesus statue. It's like Jesus winking and pointing at, at you. I mean, just bringing him down to the man. I've even, this is really popular now too. They have shirts and hats that say, Jesus is my homeboy. You guys heard of these? Stars like, I think, Ashton Kutcher, a bunch of people were wearing this. But guys, I don't want to just minimize that. Because there's a sliver of truth in there. Because the gospel, Jesus has been brought close, Right? He was far off, but now he's as close to us as a friend. But he's not just a friend. He's not just a man. He's God and he is holy. This became so apparent to me a couple years ago. I was 
I worked for an engineer for a few years, and I did a lot of surveying. And we'd always go in pairs because we had all the equipment to bring. And there was a guy that I went with that would tell you flat out he is not a Christian. And he, he would say that that's why I can live as sinfully as possible. And for some reason, he loved to talk about Jesus. So it was great. I talked about Jesus when we'd survey. And, and one day I asked him, I said, hey, what do you think is going to happen when you face Jesus one day? Knowing all the things you've done, knowing all the sin in your life, what, what's going to happen? He told me, he's like, well, I think Jesus and I will sit down, have a nice long talk, and just kind of work things out. And I, I mean, I just have a lot of questions for Jesus. I didn't know what to say. I, I honestly didn't. I didn't say anything. And um, he asked me the reverse question. Say, hey, well, what do you think? After I kind of thought about it, I'm like, you know what? I think when we face Jesus, we're going to be on our face. We're not going to be the ones questioning Jesus. He'll be questioning us. Completely different Jesus, isn't it? Completely. And that's out there in the movies and the TV. Why? Why do we not know who Jesus really is when we have the word of God? It's because we lost the fact that Jesus is holy. You take that away, he's not divine anymore. And what holiness means is this, is that Jesus is utterly and uniquely excellent and separate from all sin and creation. He is pure, he is good, he is righteous. That's one aspect of Jesus' holiness when he says, be holy as I am holy. But then he's also apart from us, transcendent, majestic, has no right to be with us because he is creator, we are creation. And that's the aspect that we've lost. And that's what I want to talk about today. I hope, guys, that we can get a glimpse of Jesus' holiness because think about how different this world would be if we knew that Jesus was holy. How serious will we take sin? How serious in the church will we take the gospel if we knew that people would die and face a holy Jesus who hates their sin and hates them rightly? So I pray that we're transformed by Jesus today. And what I want you to get more than anything else today is this. Jesus is holy. And our only response to that is that we should tremble and then treasure him. That's it. Jesus is holy. And we should tremble when we see that. But we should also cling to him and treasure him more than anything else in the world because he is our only hope. And that's what this passage teaches us. I want to break this into four parts. First of all, the revelation of Jesus' holiness. He pulls the curtain back and reveals who he really is. And then Peter's response to that holiness. And then Jesus extends him grace, reassures him of grace. And then Peter responds to that grace. So revelation of holiness, reaction to that holiness, Jesus giving grace, and then Peter's response. Now, of course, this, in the, this is in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, as you know, was a physician. Great eye for detail, and that comes across in this passage and so many others. But Luke was very good at giving a full picture of Jesus. Very good. He talks about Jesus' humanity because he talks about his family and the emotions that he had. But he also talks about his deity and all the great miracles he did and all the claims he made that only God can make. So Luke balanced that out very well. And in the first, the chapter right before this, chapter 4, Jesus began his ministry. He got back from the desert. He was tempted. He's ready to go. He goes to the synagogue. He's rejected. So he takes the gospel to the streets. I love that. He goes and says, I'm going to preach to the people that will hear. 
And he goes and he's preaching around. He's, he's casting out demons. He's healing people. And that's where we pick up in Luke 5. Verse 1, one more time. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Let me give you a picture of what's going on here. What's going on is that Jesus is on this lake. And the lake of Gennesaret sounds like a weird name to us. It's just the Sea of Galilee. Luke is really good with details. So he gives it a more specific name because Gennesaret was the northern region of that lake. So that's where Jesus probably was. And he's on the shore and people are just pressing in on him. They can't get enough. They want to get closer and closer to him. Why? Maybe they just want to see another miracle. Maybe they just want to be healed. Maybe they just want to see something miraculous. But Luke tells us the real reason. I mean, miracles are enough to draw the crowd, right? I mean, we have TBN. That's, I mean, like 24-hour miracles sometimes. But the point is that's not enough to spread the word of gospel and to change people's lives. The word has to be preached, and that's what it says. They were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Even better, the word from God. He was the prophet. He was the one speaking truth in these people's lives in ways they'd never heard before. In verse 2, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Let me stop there for a sec. I don't know what it is, but we're kind of jaded when we think of fishing at this time. I don't know if it's the old felt boards we had in Sunday school that have the little boats. Um, But this is not just little bitty like dingy boats fishing. It's not, they had two kinds of fishing. They would throw a net out. One person would do this on the shore. They'd do it in the, the late evening and early morning when the fish come close to the shore. And they would pull the string and catch like five, six, maybe ten fish. But this fishing, this is big boat, big net, big industry fishing. This is how they made their living. These boats were estimated to be seven and a half feet wide by about 27 feet long. Massive boats. And we know from Mark that it actually fit at least 13 men in it. Because all the disciples and Jesus were in the boat. So that's a huge, huge boat. And these guys had these nets that were anywhere from 100 feet long to even half a mile long. And they would go out on this lake with this big heap of net. And they had cork on top and they had probably weights or rocks in the bottom. And they would go spread it out in this huge semicircle. And it would create this wall of net and just come together and then capture as many fish as they could. That was their livelihood. That's how they caught the fish, and that's how Peter lived. He grew up on the lake, and that's how it happened. And, guys, this is back-breaking work. I mean, they didn't have any electronic winches or any high-tech equipment. They were pulling these things in by hand, and they did it all night long because night was the only time to fish. These massive nets were a lot thicker, so if they fished in the day, the fish would see them. They'd run off, or swim off, right? Not run off. Um, but they would, they would see that and they would go away. And also they did it at night because that's when all the fish would come to the top. There's no heat. They come to the top and the edges, they can grab them in the nets. In the day, all the fish were at the very bottom of the, of the sea. And the nets would just go right over the top of them. So that's the situation now. The night was for fishing. It's early morning. They're fixing the nets. They're washing them. They're getting ready to put them back in the boat, go see the family for a couple hours, and then go back out and do it again the next night. That's where Jesus comes across in verse 2 here. Then he says this, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people. Now, Jesus didn't just get in some random boat. He actually knew Simon. We learn from John chapter 1 that um, Andrew, his brother, introduced him. He said, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. Let's go see him. But they didn't make any commitments to Jesus then. They just met him and saw some miracles and thought he was a pretty good guy. And then in chapter 4 of Luke... 
we see Jesus actually coming to Simon's house and healing his mother-in-law. So Jesus knew Simon, and Simon knew Jesus, Simon Peter. And so he steps in his boat. He says, put out a little bit from the land. He's on the water because the people are pressing in on him. The water acts as an amplifier, and he's able to preach to maybe even thousands of people on the shore. Now, I don't just try to give you the history lesson for no reason. This is important to see how glorious this miracle is and why Peter responds this way. Okay, let's look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for the catch. Strange request. It's the middle of the day. They just finished cleaning the nets, putting them away. Jesus wants them to go out and do it all again. Okay, see what Simon says. And Simon, verse 5, answered, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Now he says master here not because he says Lord. That's almost like a a formal address for a teacher, like you would say professor or doctor, that kind of thing. He's not Lord yet. But he's. you can almost hear like a little rebuke in Peter's words, right? Peter's saying, Lord, look, you're the carpenter. I'm the fisherman. I grew up on this lake. I know that this is the wrong time to fish. Fish are all on the bottom. We have the wrong nets. We're going to look like idiots going out there. All the other fishermen will be on shore laughing at us. What are you thinking? This doesn't work this way. I'm sure some of those things were going through Peter's mind. But look what he says. Next verse. But at your word, I will let down the nets. There's a, there's a great lesson here, even in these little words here, because even when things don't make sense, Peter knows Jesus enough to know he should trust him. And that's just like us. I mean, a lot of times, Jesus, the word of God will ask us to do crazy things, like sell everything we have and go to Africa with Dan, stuff like that. And it doesn't make sense sometimes, but we know Jesus is good and we can trust him. And when we see his holiness, we can trust him even more. And that's about what Peter's going to see. So Peter sets out, he's taking the nets, he's going out to fish. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats and the boats began to sink. Could you imagine this scene? Peter's fishing his whole life, probably never seen this much fish in his life. So much so that these massive nets are tearing. The two massive boats are sinking. And people on shore are amazed. They don't know what's going on. Peter himself is just probably blown away by this. Doesn't know what to do. It was the wrong time of day, the wrong kind of nets. It shouldn't happen. They fished all night and there shouldn't have been fish there. Something's going on. And think about this for a second. Peter could have done a lot of things here. He could have first of all said, it's a carpenter. It's a lucky guess. That's all it was. Lucky guess. Maybe Jesus has been doing some fishing on the side, got some practice, and got lucky. Or could have said, you know what? That's a really cool trick. Jesus, could could you teach me how to do that? I could make some money on that. I could support my family on this. How about Jesus, every day during the middle of the day when no one else is on the lake, we'll go fishing. Right? Let's make some money, just like Simon in Acts. Simon the magician. He became a believer and he saw Philip laying his hands on somebody to receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon says, Hey, take my money. Show me how to do that. That's really cool. Peter could have done that, couldn't he? 
He could have said, yeah, that's a great trick. Let's use that. Maybe even for ministry, we could make so much money, we won't have to work that much. And we can just go out and teach people. But he didn't, right? Because that is what people do with Jesus in this world. You know, if you've heard of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, that's what it's all about. Come to Jesus. You'll have a nice car, nice house, healthy family. Shoot, if Jesus will give me a BMW, I'll take Jesus. We use Jesus. And you know one very important thing about both of these responses? Jesus is not God, right? He's a really lucky guy, or is he, or he's a guy that can do really cool things. He's not the living God in control of everything. Peter doesn't respond this way. Look at verse 8. This is his response. That was the display of Jesus' holiness through the miracle. This is his response. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What a weird way to respond. Jesus didn't do any moral miracle, right? He didn't heal anybody. He didn't cast out demons. There's nothing special about catching fish. He just caught a lot of them. But Peter is led to confess all of his sins. What's going on? The reason this happened is because Peter knew fishing. This is the wrong time of day. This is the wrong type of equipment. No one should catch fish like this at this time on this lake. Jesus must have known where the fish were. Not only that, he must have been able to control the fish enough to go into the net. Who has control over his creation like that? God. You see what Peter realized? This is not a man in my boat. This is God Almighty. And when he sees that he's God, he knows that God is holy, he says, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And Peter's a good Jew. He knows not to bow down to anybody but God. But he bows down to Jesus and says, get out of my boat. I can't take this anymore. You shouldn't be here. I should not be with you. I am a sinner. You are holy. Get away from me. That's the response that Peter has. R.C. Sproul puts this perfectly. He says this. We pigeonhole people in our minds. We look at them and make instantaneous judgments. We divide them into categories, species, and genus. And for the first time in his life, Peter has met a person for whom he has no category. He was in the presence of a man in a class by himself. His otherness was so alien that it was terrifying. Christ was alien, and at the heart of this difference was that he was holy. See, for a split second, the veil was pulled back, and Jesus wasn't just a man anymore. He was a holy, living God that demanded worship and hated sin. And it made, G- and made Peter overwhelmed by his presence. Because this is the proper response to Jesus. Not Jesus is my homeboy. Not Jesus is my buddy who I like for his advice, but he really has no weight in my life. This is how people respond to Jesus most often in Scripture when they see who he really is. In chapter 4 of Luke, demons responded like this. The demon said this when he was casting them out. Luke 4.34, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Has you, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You're not supposed to be here. We're sinners. We're terrified of you. 
You are God, and we don't belong with you. The disciples get a taste of this in Mark 4. I love this passage. They're, they're out on this boat once again. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus decides to take a nap. And all of a sudden, there's this massive storm that's just tossing the boat around, like perfect storm out there or something. And the disciples are terrified, and they run to Jesus and say, aren't you going to help us? Fix this. Calm, do something. And Jesus stands up and rebukes the storm. Then he says this. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, What then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were afraid before in the storm, but when they saw who Jesus was, really is, they were really afraid. They were terrified because he was holy. And in the transfiguration, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, go up on the mountain to see Jesus and to pray. And Jesus is transfigured in front of them. He starts glowing with bright light. His clothes are transformed in a glorious way. And the disciples that were so close to him, closer than anybody else, went on their face. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. The closest people to Jesus are terrified because he's holy. Even though they know that he's for them, he loves them. His holiness is still terrifying. In Revelation, when John sees the risen Lord in 117, he says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Isaiah 6, in, in Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He stood with the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That's Jesus. That's the pre-incarnate Lord. And Isaiah responds by saying, I'm a pretty cool guy. No, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I am a sinner. I don't belong here. John Calvin adds to this, Although men are earnest in seeking the presence of God, yet as soon as God appears, they must be struck with terror and almost rendered lifeless by dread and alarm. No more Jesus is my homeboy. No more Jesus is my buddy, just my pal. Jesus is terrifying in his holiness. And if we were standing with Peter at that moment, the only thing we could say, if we could speak, would be, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's it. That's why Peter says this. And guys, look, I can't put you in that boat. I can't put you in the boat and tell you exactly what Jesus or what Peter was feeling at that moment. But is that the Jesus that we've described? Is that the Jesus you worship? When you think of Jesus most of the time, is that the Jesus you worship? To be honest with you, this is probably not the Jesus I worship most of the time. When I sing songs about him, when I think about Jesus, what comes to my head most often does not depart from me, for I am a sinful man. 
There should be some of that in our response to Jesus. I heard this illustration a while ago. This is from one of my favorite teachers at Biola named Eric Tonis. Um, I want to give you guys just a little bit of a taste of what it feels like to be in that boat. What it would be like to face the holiness of Jesus, just the raw holiness of Jesus. But it's a little difficult because we have to imagine that we're in Old Testament times. We're Jews, okay? Let's picture that for a second. I have to bear with me here. But let's pretend that this place is the temple of God, okay? Temple of God. The parking lot is the outer courts. That were, that's where people would bring their animals. They would have them killed and gather the blood. Um, there was a laver out there where the priest would wash his hands. That's where a lot of the sacrifices were made. Now, this place here is the holy place. Only three things in this room. There's a golden lampstand. There's a table with 12 loaves on it for the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's an altar of incense. And what would happen is the priest would go out and make sacrifices. Then he would come in this room with the blood, and he would get ready to go into the Holy of Holies. Now let's pretend that these doors over here represent that. That's the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from us. Okay? Behind those doors rests the Ark of the Covenant, the actual presence of God Almighty. And no one goes in there except for one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Well, let's pretend that today's the Day of Atonement and you're the high priest. You're the one that's going to face God. Here's what you would do. On the Day of Atonement, you would have to wash your body at least five times. Wash your hands at least ten times. You'd have to wear this special robe that was only reserved for this day. No tears or blemishes or wrinkles. had to be perfect. And you would also have to go out and make sacrifices in the court for the people to atone for their sins and for your sins. And you would take the blood and you would come in here and you had to continually stir it because it can't coagulate. I think as I said, coagulate. Um, but you can't have that happen. You come in here, you get the altar, you get the incense and you have that and you're ready to go in and sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat to atone for our sins. Let's think about this for a second. If there was one thing, one thing done incorrectly, and that whole time you were doing all these sacrifices, you're dead. One thing. If you did not meet the requirements, if you were not from the family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, if you didn't have good health, no beard or blemishes, no bald spots, your wife had to be pure. None of that worked out. You're dead. If there was any sin in you, or in the people that you represented that was not covered in that sacrifice out there, that animal that you just killed and you're holding the blood for, you're dead. And now we're going to face God. These aren't just threats, guys. In Leviticus 10, he killed two sons of Aaron because they mixed the incense wrong. In the desert, they were carrying the ark across the desert, and one of the guys started to slip that was carrying it. And Uzzah was in the desert. He thought for a moment that I can't let it touch the ground, that I must be more holy than the ground. So he reached out to touch it, and he died instantly. God doesn't mess around. That's what the temple was for, to show us that we just don't presume upon God's holiness. We don't belong with God. We should be separated from him, and you're the one that's going to face him. Let's not stop there. Let's think about the God we're going to face for a second. Let's think about how much he should actually hate us, hate our sin. I want you to picture for a second the greatest evil that you could possibly think of in this world, the greatest injustice, the greatest horrible thing that you've ever experienced or thought of. 
whether it's rape, murder, terrorism, whatever you can think of. And I want you to um, think of how that has personally affected you. We've all been betrayed. We've all been lied to. We've all been um, cheated. How have you personally been affected by evil? Think of that evil. Think of how you felt about the perpetrators of that evil and how much you hated that. Now let's add this to the equation. Imagine if you were perfectly holy. And remember, that means that you are infinitely excellent and above everything in creation, and you are completely separate from sin and evil. Imagine how you would look at sin and evil if there was no sin and evil in you. And you guys, we hate sin and evil. But you know what the Bible teaches? That not only are we not holy, we're all fallen. That that sin and evil that we hate, we're still a part of. We still have those seeds of evil in our own heart. You know the difference between us and Hitler? Grace. It's it. Same heart, same evil desires. Just God has refrained us from going that far. And we still hate evil. Imagine if you were holy, how much you would hate that sin and evil. And holiness is not just some separate attribute of God. It affects all that he does. So imagine if your justice was holy, if you were completely just, you were completely righteous, you always do what is right and good and just. You can't let that pass. Let's add this to the equation. What if you knew everything? What if you knew the intimate details of every sin that has ever happened, that is happening right now, and that will happen? You knew all the motives behind it, all the thoughts, and you're not bound by time, so you can, have, you can see these things all vividly simultaneously. All at once, all that sin in front of your face, how much hatred will we have for it? One last thing. What if the perpetrators of the sin and evil owe their very existence to you? They don't have one heartbeat, one breath. They have nothing apart from you. And the only reason you created them in the first place is to glorify you. And they don't give you credit for anything. Anything. Have you ever not gotten credit for something? Bothers us, huh? What if the credit's given to somebody else? It's even worse. Imagine how a holy, infinite, just, all-knowing God who made everything for his glory feels about sin and evil, which is fundamentally giving our creator the finger. Does that offend you? It offends God far more. And that's the God we're about to face. That's the holy God that we're about to face. You feel that like anxiousness in your gut. I just do not belong here. That's just a taste of what it feels like to be in that boat with Jesus. Just a taste. You know what's even more scary? You know what's really separating us from a holy Jesus? It's less than that door. It's less than the curtain to the holy of holies. It's one breath. We are one breath, one heartbeat, one heart attack. So we learned this week with Michael Jackson, right? 
one illness, one cancer cell, one car wreck away from facing a holy Jesus with all of our sin. Think about that. Think about what you did this morning or last night or this week or last month, the sin that was in your life, and think about what it would be like to face Jesus in a second. I don't know about you, but that's terrifying. I don't belong there. I didn't just come this morning to freak you out. Although Jesus should terrify us in his holiness. But praise be to God, the passage doesn't end there. We don't stop at being terrified at Jesus. Look at verse 10. After uh, Peter has said these things, Jesus said to Simon, the end of verse 10, Do not be afraid. Literally, stop being terrified. That's what that means. Stop being terrified. Well, what's going on? You're supposed to be terrified in the presence of Jesus, right? We just saw so many people. Why why does Jesus say this? Because the reason he came is for guys like Peter. The reason he's there in that boat is to preach the gospel. The reason he's there is to sacrifice his life so guys like Peter and guys like us and men and women like us can be with him. We don't have to be terrified of God's wrath anymore. We can have a healthy fear of God, but we can now run to him and enjoy him because of his sacrifice. You guys, you know one of the most radical things that happened when Jesus died? That curtain that separated from the Holy of Holies tore in half and fell to the ground, showing that we actually have a place with God. Sinners can be with God. That's a miracle. Not only that, all those things that were opposed to us before are actually now working for us in Christ. His holiness, Jesus' holiness that is terrifying is now our holiness because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is holy and we are holy. Not only that, his justice and his wrath, which was a response of his holiness, is now working for us so that every time we sin, every time Jesus is standing before the Father and says, you see that? You see what he just did? I died for that. You are now faithful and just to forgive that sin because I paid the price for that. And his sovereign hand and his knowledge, all those things, as Romans 8 says, are working for us so that everything works for the good of those who love God. That's a miracle. That's why Jesus is extending grace to Peter, and that's exactly what Jesus does to us. Well, where are you right now? What does Jesus mean to you? Is he just some average Joe, some average guy that can do really cool tricks? Maybe taught some pretty good things? Or is he just your buddy, just your friend, just a man? Or are you terrified? Maybe you've been confronted with Jesus in a way you've never even thought about before today. Maybe you sit in your seat condemned of your sin, knowing that if you face Jesus in a second, you would be just like Peter. If that's the case, guys, if you've never trusted Jesus, never committed your life to him, now's the time. Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus, and his grace will cover you. Repent. Turn to him and follow him. That You don't have to be terrified anymore. We can fear God as a reverence, as a son fears his father. And we can actually treasure him. That's what I love about Jesus. Jesus loves to sink his people, just like John Calvin says. 
Thus Christ sinks his people into the grave that he may afterwards raise them up again. If you've seen your sin, you've seen Jesus' holiness, you see that you're in trouble, but you've trusted in his grace, Jesus wants to raise you up again. Look at the next verse. Right at the end of verse 10. Do not be afraid. And from now on, you will be catching men. Peter used to catch fish, and they were all dead. But now this words actually mean catching men alive. You are going to give men life. I love this, because God, in our sin, in our weakness, humbles us so that he can use us. And all those examples before, people being humbled by the holiness of Jesus, he used them too. Isaiah, when he feared destruction in Isaiah 6, he was called upon to preach. John, when he saw the risen Lord in Revelation, he was on his face as though dead. He was called upon to write the book of Revelation, to give people the gospel. And Peter, when he's terrified and tells Jesus to get out of his boat, he's given grace and said, I want to use you. That's our God. Look at verse, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I love this because the guy that was scared to death to be with Jesus, because of his grace, can't get enough. Guys, this is his life. This is his livelihood. This is how he supported his family. The biggest catch in his whole life, he didn't even stop to take a picture. Right? It's not like that. This would be like a Major League Baseball player throwing a no-hitter, walking away in the bottom of the ninth with two outs. That's what this is like. But he, he walked away because he's treasured Jesus. That's the last thing that Jesus' holiness should make us do. Treasure him. Love him more than anything else in this world. Just like Paul says in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Is that you? Have you seen Jesus' holiness in such a way that you treasure him more than anything else? Guys, think about this. If Jesus is that terrifying, there is nothing left that should scare us. Nothing. Nothing. Losing a job, losing a family member, cancer or illness, going to a country like John Cook where people may be chasing you with machetes, dying, losing your whole family in a country that you just want to share the gospel with the people, the people you're trying to minister to kill your whole family, like so many of the missionaries before us, that's not even scary compared to Jesus. And we survive Jesus because of his grace. And that grace is given to us so that we can serve him. We can toss everything aside and treasure him more than anything else in this world. That's what I want you guys to do today, this week, for the rest of your lives. Look at Jesus. Behold his holiness. Tremble because of our sin. But see the cross, see the grace, and then get up and treasure Jesus more than anything else in this world and take that message to people that don't know it, that will face a holy Jesus and be terrified if they don't hear the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage and this powerful description of Jesus. It's just alarming because we don't even know what this is like and we can't even barely get a glimpse of who your son really is 
But we pray that even this small glimpse of his glory, of his holiness, would be enough to transform us with the work of your spirit to do amazing things for Jesus. To glorify your name throughout the entire world, Bakersfield, and send people out all over the world sharing the gospel. And I pray that that's what you would do. You would set people aside in this congregation to go, to be ministers of your word to a lost and dying world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.